Well, hello, it's Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb, and we are at the most super exciting, interesting thing I've seen in ages. Crabb, would you care to enlighten our audience? <laughs> well, um, I'm actually uh, on leave from work for um, a couple of weeks to make a cookbook with my best friend from primary school, uh, Wendy Sharp. We grew up on, um, the, in, on the Adelaide Plains in the same teeny little country town. And over the years, we've sort of lived in the same place sometimes and then often not. She loves, She now lives in London. But the key detail about Wendy is that she is a superb cook and she is the recipe consultant on Kitchen Cabinet. So the desserts we make for Kitchen Cabinet, um, we uh, kind of workshop back and forth between us. And she does most of the clever stuff, I must say. Um, and um, anyway, so we're writing a cookbook together, which is not really about the kitchen cabinet desserts. There's lots of other stuff um, as well, but it's all about food that you can take to somebody else's house. Uh-huh. Right? And so I very craftily, today is um, one of the days that they're shooting the actual, some of the recipes for the photography for the book. And so I said to Annabelle, hey, how about I pop along to that? Because <laughs> <laughs> thinking that there might be some food that I could steal and have a listen to this. This is me with something that I'm eating now, which is what exactly? It's um, it's a, a jelly, a variegated jelly, which um, we've just photographed in these oh, little delicious. tea glasses in a little wire carrier. Part of it is just the thrill of thinking of novel ways to, to transport food. This is something that occupies both my and Wendy's time uh, quite considerably and has done for years. But it's, um, I'll tell you what. It's a lurk, this cookbook game. It's so cool because basically it's, it's, you know, you're working very hard, but what you're doing is you're cooking with your mate <laughs> and pretending to be slightly more qualified in my case and her case than we actually are because there's a sort of a stylist and there's a food photographer. and Well, that's why I found it so interesting because like, this world is completely, you know, opaque to me. I've never had anything right. to do with it. And so I've walked into this ginormous studio where... Annabelle and her team are shooting and there is a huge table full of all sorts of props and little jugs and plates and cups and saucers and all sorts of stuff. It's like a giant Nana's house in the sky has been raided and exactly. then just and brought all of its there. contents assembled. And then there's about five people cooking the various recipes and getting the food ready for the stylist to then position on some of the props. And then the photos just look what they've shot so far, I was having a sneaky, sticky beak over the photographer's shoulder. They look amazing. Well, this stylist, her name's Michelle Morianto, and she's done this thing where Wendy kind of sent through links to her Pinterest page, which has all of her kitchen things, and then she came around and had a look at my house. And on the strength of that, this woman's basically gone out and just sort of grabbed some other stuff and is putting together things that it turns out that yeah, we both really like it. I think that's an amazing skill. skill. Yeah. And it's not, I, I'm useless at that. Like my friend Sharon has got that skill that you go to her house for dinner and the table, it will look casually arranged, but it will look amazing. Like right. she just has the eye yeah. to make things look beautiful or she just, I don't know, just the way that she will position, even like her clothes and right, stuff. Like she yeah. just clearly has a really great eye for what's going to look nice. Even like I sometimes notice the degree of how open the flowers that she has on the table are. So she must two days earlier think, I'd like my peonies to be a little more full. And then she'd get like, yeah, she's just... She's a peony fluffer, right? That's what we need. Wendy is a total peony fluffer and her house is very... She's one of these people who can walk into an auction house and just go, wow, that beaten up, you know, hobby horse would look incredible in my kid's bedroom or whatever. Right. And I will stagger out of there with a, like... 
80 kilo industrial set of scales thinking this could be cool and then of course it isn't cool really <laughs> and then you know you're barking your shins on this bloody thing indefinitely <laughs> like I mean I try to emulate her sense of style because hers is so effortless and natural and mine is just sort of like oh this you know is, a very clunky second this is something that I think um I, I often think about in relation to scarves because some oh. women can wear scarves <laughs> and they look stylish and a little bit Parisian and some women like me wear scarves and they look like clowns best in show <laughs> I've never seen you in a scarf. So no, because I can't wear one. I just look. What about a headscarf? No, I look just <laughs> awkward and weird. Whereas you know how some women just sort of yeah. throw one around and they just a little knot or something, yeah. and then they just look fantastic. I've seen Wendy wear three scarves, you know, and wow. see, I would look like a pile of old clothes heading for the skip, but she looks like hi. I'm just you know. I live in Paris, you know. Well, yeah. that's right. You know, you see some people in the street and they'll wear something <laughs> and you think, okay, on you, you just look really fashion forward and cool. If I wore that, my friends would cack themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you have other strengths, I must say. Well, so, you know, mean... but being stylish would be nice. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, it's very exciting to have other people being stylish for you. And yeah, also, just... I found writing recipes just so relaxing as well because really? there's no, I don't know, it's just, it's sort of methodical, it's engaging, it's kind of, it's challenging in the sense you're like, oh, I wonder how if I put a bit more of that or, you know, um, whatever, or, or just formalizing something that you do, you know, because like a lot of these recipes are things that we make all the time. Mm. Um, but then to write them down is quite challenging. Mind you, to write something that, you know that no one is ever going to sue you over, you know, you don't have to worry about, you know, being balanced and, you know, have I considered all of the political considerations here and, and all the sort of stuff that mm. does your head in when you're writing a, sure. you know, something about politics. It's just blissfully absent. So it's just hugely good fun. Also, at the end of the day, you're left not with, you know, 800 words of copy, you're left with an actual table full of food, yeah. which is pretty bloody. Hence my awesome. decision to come yeah. and do the podcast today. I noticed today. that you suspiciously, like, I love because I thought you'd find this this studio is kind of in a big building of photographic studios, and I, of course, struggled to find it first time, so no. I thought, say, will never no find it. I just and then suddenly you just materialised <laughs> just as the last of the ganache was going oh. on, the, uh, on the eclairs. Nice. And the smell of that room when yeah, I opened the door. Good, oh, my God, yeah. it was amazing. I did notice, though, because, of course, knowing, you know, you know what I'm like, I sort of, within about three seconds of arriving, went, mm, I think I'll just grab one of those little profiteroli things. And the girl who was sort of, I don't know which one she was, but not the stylist, but another one went, um, like as if like, no, don't eat out of shot. <laughs> I love that you actually insisted though. You're I like, did. I went, no. oh, just a misshapen yeah. one. I'll take that misshapen yeah, one. Actually, no, I'm still going to take it. Thank you. <laughs> it's um, like when you get there, you've got to shoot a few generals, you know, like I'm just going to eat this eclair, whatever you think. And excuse then me, I'm that... a friend of the author. I will eat whatever <laughs> I choose. It's like a silverback gorilla moment. <laughs> Right, exactly. You can go back there and just like... establishing my status in the room. <gasps> Did you have you have you have you read that? Um, oh, what's that latest Ian McEwan book? Not, latest, uh, not the Children Act. Um, no, the one before that about the spy. Um, happy happy happiness. Happy. Oh, bloody hell! No, what's the it called? Solar is what's the last my one. Brain? No, it's no. after that. No. Okay, I... I'm going to look it up and put in the links. I'm slightly embarrassed. I can't remember. Um, but it's um, the story of this 
woman who becomes a spy. But the <laughs> there's this devastating scene on a train where the male protagonist um, has he's obsessed with chips, you know, packets of chips. He loves that salty. He's fat, so he feels guilty about eating chips. But when he goes on a long train journey, he surreptitiously buys himself a foil packet of chips at the oh. train station. Oh. Anyway, he's sitting opposite this guy and he, um, at some point, this packet of, this packet of chips is between them on the, on the table and he's playing this sort of looking but not looking at this other guy. And then slowly, deliberately, the other guy leans forward and picks up the packet of chips, opens it defiantly, so <laughs> the character thinks, takes one and eats it. And the character thinks, oh, this is so confronting. What's this guy doing? He's eating my chips. Like, he knows about my secret shame. Like, he's trying to burrow into my <sighs> psyche. And so the character thinks, I'm not having any of that. So he takes a chip and eats it defiantly. Oh. And then for the next half hour, they're going chip for chip not saying a word, this really weird situation. And then the other guy gets off the train. Right. And then as he, as the character is getting off the train, he finds the chip packet still intact in his briefcase. Oh. It was the other guy's oh. packet of chips. <laughs> so this, good. This reminds me of one of my favourite bits of colour ever. It was in the profile of Kevin Rudd. Right. Um, and it was when Kevin Rudd had been dumped as Prime Minister the first time around and everyone was trying to, you know, paint a picture of why was Kevin so bad that he had to be dumped. And in a piece that Claire Harvey wrote for the Sunday Telegraph, she had an, an anecdote from an anonymous... I know where you're going. <laughs> an anecdote from an anonymous businessman who was talking about how dreadful Kevin was and how they went out to lunch together and Kevin sat there taking chip after chip off my plate. That is outrageous. <laughs> that is outrageous. I would have slapped Kevin if he did that to but me. food is very significant. Like, I've got to say, in the last week, you know, a huge amount has happened typically in a week in the life of this government. Various decisions have been made or reneged upon. Like there's a constant marketplace of coming and comings and goings but the thing that i cannot forget is the onion i can't forget the onion sales have you ever it's eaten just... a raw onion like that no uh, and either. there are about a thousand decent human reasons why i wouldn't <laughs> it's just a violation of something very <laughs> deep i just i can't and you know every time i see you know i see an announcement or you know oh we're not we're, we're not going to um you know, defund the NCRIS or we're, we're going to do this or we're going to, you know, all I can think is you ate an onion. You, <laughs> you can never look onion. at him ever again. It's, I know. See, I always oh, look on. at Kevin and go, chip steal, right. chip thief. Um, I had a, uh, I haven't had a chance to do a lot of cooking lately because I've just been busy with work and my children, but I did have some people around on the weekend. And so I went and had a look in the cookbook of your boyfriend, Yotamotolingi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> See episode one of chapter <laughs> no. next Um, and I did a couple of absolutely delicious, um, salads. One that I highly recommend out of Jerusalem. I don't know if you've made it. It's the roast cauliflower and hazelnut salad. Oh, I've eaten it. I haven't made it. Absolutely delicious. Look, and I mean, pretty much rolling anything in a bowl with olive oil, salt and pepper, and then roasting it at 220. I mean, I could put my thongs in and do that, and they'd be absolutely <laughs> delicious. Right. But cauliflower... Maybe not the when I next come round. <laughs> but the cauliflower done like that, the hardest thing for me is to not just woof the yeah. entire tray of it before I make the salad. Cauliflower is just... It really sneaks up on you when it's... Um, roasted it's beautiful. so delicious you just never think of the sugar content of um cauliflower but when it, it's roasted like that it's just 
so nutty and sweet Beautiful. and delicious. And it's, then the hazelnuts. So you roast the hazelnuts as well, and then you sort of give them a quick whiz in the food processor so they're chopped mm. a little. And there, that sort of brings out the nuttiness more to mm. the cauliflower. And so it's basically that, then with a bit of flat leaf parsley, chopped mm. celery, pomegranate seeds. Of course, of there's course. pomegranate seeds. And yeah. then the dressing is cinnamon mixed spice, Sherry vinegar and maple syrup. Oh, yeah, right. It's an absolute Chuck a bit more sugar at that situation. Yeah. And don't tell Sarah Wilson. Mm. Absolutely, um, really, really delicious. And yeah, so Yotamotalingi's Jerusalem. And another one I made, which is a really good one. Have you made the roast sweet potatoes and figs? Yes, I have. Oh, very, I very tasty. Good. So that's roast potatoes, fresh figs. You pan fry some shallots with some chili, and then stick that through, and then crumbled goat's cheese on top, and a bit of a balsamic reduction. Mm. Yeah. Very delicious. We've got a we've got a cauliflower recipe in this cookbook that we're doing, which um, where you basically make it into rice, basically, or like couscous. You oh. do, you vitamize it into little crumbs, raw or after you've cooked it. No, raw. Right. And it's it really crumbs up, and so it looks like couscous. In fact, oh. um, the chef, New Zealand chef um, Peter Gordon, has got this amazing recipe where he uses cauliflower and couscous together and you can't tell which is which right you know vitamized like oh. that mm. how do you then but cook it once you've in the pan just oh, sort pan of fried. um yeah right right oh, yum. it's awful. really nice and so wendy makes um a kedgeree with that like a sort of mm. yeah i know it's mm. a bit curryish oh delicious mm. Mm. um we now, could go on like this for hours i think we could do the whole podcast feeling a bit hot like this? yes now yes. i was <laughs> We're sitting in a car, and also my car stinks. I don't know why, so try because and... Because we, inside the studio was a little echoey, so we said, let's go sit in Crab's car. We've turned it off to try to make the audio decent quality for once in our life, and now we're sweating. It's kilos. like a sauna. <laughs> I'm just dying here. I'm sweating. We're drinking cups of tea as well. We open to... the door. Like yeah, a... or we might need to... And then... Oh, oh my God, that's so good. Oh, oh, God. It's got to be about 38 degrees. Like if there was a puppy in here, we'd be criminals. I know, but, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, if we if things go silent, it means we've both just fainted. <laughs> police <laughs> we're gonna have to shut the doors too because we're in a location oh. we're a bit under the flight path so just right. just bear with us we, we, we did promise crappy quality look and if you're up to episode eight on this podcast yeah, you know how you this rolls <laughs> <laughs> um now i um am a huge fan of have you seen the film zoolander mm-hmm. are you a fan yeah big fan do you quote like lines out of it all the time i'm not that tragic but you know i do it's it's very funny i enjoyed it a lot i look it's one of those films where people will say to me what have you been doing and i'll go i've been tripping with the spider monkeys like i just am always quoting stupid lines out of it um anyway zoolander 2 is coming out uh, not imminently but i think maybe next year or later this year and so ben stiller and owen wilson have been doing like stuff that's going viral where they've yeah. been acting like the characters in real life situations, which I find an intriguing development in film marketing. So they did this thing, which we'll put a link to on www.chat10looks3.com. There it is. <laughs> so actually while I'm doing that, so you can, you don't, if you're frantically now looking around for a pencil thinking, Oh my God, I've got to write down Yoda Lingy. No, you don't. Because on our website are links to everything that we're talking about. Chat10looks3.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at, chen, at chat10looks3. And if you like what we do, please go and give us a review on iTunes. And I should also mention that if you follow us on iTunes, you might have noticed that there's a really bad photo of us that we've been using. <laughs> you look really cute. I look like Eleanor Roosevelt. Really? Because I look um, awful. in my house, that photograph is often critiqued. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy just says, look, it's just a really, really shit photo. And he said, I'm afraid you both look mental. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, 
Okay. Thanks, sweetie. Let me know if there's ever anything I can do for you. But um, I... We've now replaced it Have because we? a very kind person on Twitter, Olivia King, yeah. just designed for us. She obviously thought like Jeremy that we both looked mental but probably more kindly than... more kindly than Jeremy said hey look at what I've done here for you and she made this really great looking little logo thing for us which we are now using because she said we can and so oh, you. if you like it um, if you like what Olivia King did for us you can look at her website oliviaking.com and thank you very much Olivia for doing that for thank us you. it was very kind yes, we'll, we'll bring you a, a, a cream puff <laughs> no, um, if I don't eat it first um, now so back to Zoolander so they did they went to Paris Fashion Week and they mm-hmm. walked in the, I think it was the Valentino show, and the crowd just went completely mental. But even better than that, backstage, they then did this video using a selfie stick and with Anna Winter, the editor of Vogue. And they were talking about, Anna was going, well, what sort of walk are you going to be doing this season? And so it's just them in their character saying ridiculous things. So Ben Stiller says, um, well, you know, normally I like to do right, left, right, left, right, left. But I think this time I'm going to start with left, right, left. I'm starting left um, in, in homage to the way of the sun's rotation or something like this nonsense. And then Owen Wilson's talking about, you know, the biggest concern in that really laconic way of his, the, the biggest concern at the moment is the environment. And so how do we... We reduce our footprint by not taking steps. So this time I'm just going to hover. <laughs> anyway, Anna Winter's even laughing. And so, of course, it's gone does viral. Does she actually have a humor? I mean, or does she have a little assistant just saying, smile Laugh indulgently now? now. <laughs> yeah, someone was holding up a cue card in front of her. Smile now. Um, and that, of course, went viral. It was reminding me of when Anchorman 2 came out and Will Ferrell did the same, where he played his character in real-life interviews and situations, which is incredibly... I mean, only skilled comic improvisers can do that sort of yeah. stuff so you couldn't use do it for every film it would depend what sort of talent you had to work with but obviously these guys you know are very very good at that and the characters give a lot of scope for that as well um it's just a really clever form of marketing that gets people talking about the film i suppose borat does it you know um but i always find those you know those permanent characters the people who aren't prepared to be interviewed unless it's in character I always find them really fascinating yeah I wanted to do Kath and Kim when the film version of that came out but I wanted to do them as Jane Turner and Gina Riley because right. I'm fascinated by their relationship and the yeah. process and stuff but they would only do it as yeah. Kath and Kim which didn't interest me so much I suppose it's like a protective barrier isn't it because yeah. you can submit to quite an extensive interview but always take the piss yeah, so you exactly. don't ever kind of have to so I can see actually sacrifice anything I it's like Stephen Colbert I find really interesting mm. Like that too, and I think that there are some. Like when he went and gave evidence to that Senate committee, did you see that? No, he was. I think it was about migrant workers, and he had gone and done these sort of like quite brutal sketches about you know going to work picking lettuces and herbs for you know a day, and and he's just you know oh I broke my nail you know this is you know you people. but then he went and gave evidence to the Senate committee, and it was really in ca- it was in, as just in Washington. Yeah, yeah, but as like normal, not acting like the character Stephen Colbert. No, right. Okay. So it was sort of it was it was really strange kind of counterpoint, and yeah. I, I found it a bit awkward, really. But then again, I you know I don't know. Maybe sometimes it's hard to when you've seen someone playing a character and you're used to them making you laugh, it can be hard to then take them seriously because you're waiting for the laugh all the right. time. Right. Well, so. ask any comedian what makes them such, like, high-rate uh, like high rate of depression. I just mm. think that they're depressed all the time because they constantly arrive at parties feeling like shit yeah. and then people expect them to be yeah. hilarious. They oh. just think, I just want to... 
just want to get quietly pissed, really. <laughs> See, whereas for me, the bonus of my job is everyone expects me to be really earnest That's and serious. That's true. So, it's so like you're not even that funny. I know. That you're a bit funny. Even a tiny bit funny. A genius. <laughs> but do you find that often? Like, I find that sometimes, like, I'm funny for a political writer, but I'm really not funny for a comedian. Oh, so completely. On, a, yeah. on occasion, like, sometimes I've been asked to do, you know, comic debates and things. Oh, yeah. Like against comedians, you're just like, oh, no, that's not working. Because, be, I know. You know. And that'd be like me saying, okay, you guys come on 7.30 and interview Tony Abbott. Like, <laughs> it's not a fair contest. Um, the On the viral marketing thing, too, with films and TV, I had a really interesting experience uh, late last year. There was a show that Channel 10 had called Party Tricks, which had oh, Asha yeah. Ketty yeah. and Roger Corsa, and they played political opponents. 10 didn't renew it because it didn't rate. It rated okay, but not brilliantly. But and I they were they were shagging, it. weren't they? That was yeah, the sort of device. exactly. Yeah. And it was really, it was a bit 50s screwball comedy sort of show. Mm. I actually really liked it. And so I was tweeting stuff about it to try to, you know, give it a bit of attention. Anyway, one night... On the, when, I, when I watched the first episode, Roger Corsa, who played um, the character's name was David McLeod, who was a, a liberal politician, ex-TV journalist turned politician. Mm. I thought it looked like Roger Corsa had studied Ray Martin intensively because <laughs> his his he, he was just doing the most unbelievable Ray Martin impersonation. I'm told later it was supposedly based on Eddie Maguire, but I thought it was definitely Ray. Anyway, I said something like that, and then I get this Twitter message from at David McLeod <laughs> saying. Oh, come on, Sales, you know, Ray's always been a great hero of mine. I know he's a hero of yours too. And I could see, I went and then clicked on the guy's account and I could see straight away what this at David McLeod character on Twitter was doing was sort of like what the Zoolander guys yeah. and Will Ferrell are doing, which is being in character in a real life situation. Mm. So I thought, oh, I, can, I see what you're trying to do. That's clever. I can play along with that. So I then created this backstory as if... David McLeod and I had been young journos on the road together right, okay. and that, you know, maybe we'd had a bit of a thing when we'd been on the road when we were young. And so I sort of threw out a couple of lines. Like, you invented flew. an affair with this character? <laughs> just imagine their like, PR officer just going, Jesus, you won't have it. You're like, what? How do we get a restraining order on this chick? Don't you have a job? <laughs> Sorry, I've still got the Fifty Shades of Grey hangover oh, too. Oh, man. <clears throat> So he saw, I started to play along and then he immediately started to play along back. And so we then created this sort of, I thought, quite amusing back and forth thing. Um, and then I got to the writer. It's obviously, of course, the writer who's doing yeah. that, not the actor. Um, and so I got to then what privately. Obviously, he might be quite a funny guy. <laughs> well, could be. Obviously, a Jill. <laughs> You know, actors, they're just pretty boys. You could have been clever enough to come up with that. You're going to get some very tautly worded messages. Yes, a nasty you know, message yeah. from Roger Corsa. Um, so Michael Lucas, who was the writer of the show, and I were then private messaging about it. Um, and I just said to him, you know, I thought it was really clever the way they tried to um, do that. Anyway, sadly, the show didn't get renewed or anything. Um, anyway, now what else? Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about. Well, you're here. you hosted Q&A last week. Yes, I did. How was that? As a result, you know, I've read very little beyond, you know, what I normally do when I'm in situations of high stress, which is to reread books about disasters happening to other people. <laughs> but, um, oh, well, it was, it was, <laughs> it was hilarious. Like, so you came in and popped in to see me a couple of hours before we went to air. That was hilarious. It was really funny. <laughs> you'd been cornered on a couch in the green room in the corner by Jermaine Greer. You were wearing a bathrobe with your hair in curlers, basically. And Jermaine was just completely holding forth. And then I walked in and went, oh, I've just come to wish you luck. And then Jermaine just went, oh, 
Pie crab. <laughs> full rant at me as well. And so I just sort of backed out and went, pie crab. <laughs> it, was a, it, was, it wasn't a, uh, an awkward rant. No, no, not She was all. holding forth very learnedly about she something was. quite interesting, which now technically evades me. But she, uh, she was great fun, actually. Because there was this massive sort of blow up later about the fact that we inadvertently got the foreign minister's nipples involved in a, some yes. sort of incident. Um, yes. Which, you know, um, I got this <laughs> hilarious text from Julie the next day saying... Hi, Belle. <laughs> Belle. Hi, Belle. Um, I'm in Coogee campaigning with a local candidate. Is anyone asking me about power privatisation? Oh. Not so much. Nipples? Oh, yeah. No. So I just sent her back a little emoticon saying, sorry about that. No, she's got a great sense of humour. Is there a emoticon? Uh, look, I didn't get... You know where you, you sort of flick through the pages of emoticons? Yep. I've never gone deep enough to see if no, there's a rack in no. there anywhere. But anyway, <laughs> so I think I just did hand clapping or, you know, or kind of Edvard Munch's scream face or something. <laughs> but she, um, look, she has a very good sense of humour, I must say, Julie. I mean, the funny thing is that, you know, with the Liberal Party doing the things it's doing at the moment, you know, having her nipples discussed as a po potential diplomatic tool isn't probably even the stupidest thing that happened to her all week. No. So. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Um, but, oh, well. um, so the, the experience of hosting Q&A was um, very interesting and it's sort of like uh, borrowing somebody's high-performance vehicle when you're not quite sure if you can drive it. But I thought, and somebody else said this to me. Now, who was it um, on the phone? I should have rung you and told you because it was someone quite... Um, oh, the author, Kate Grimble, oh. said to me, uh, I was interviewing her on Monday for something that hasn't run yet, and she said how impressed she was, and I thought the same, at how lightly and adeptly you sort of helped the conversation flow around between the various guests because that is a very hard thing to do, to move things on at the right time and to make sure everyone's getting a little bit of equal time and to do it with a bit of charm so that nobody looks like they're being cut off. Um, so there you go, Kate Grimble thought wow. that was a good job. Thank you. I thought go buy several of her books. Well, she's got a new book coming out actually, which I was, which is what I was interviewing her about, oh, yeah. which is about, it's, it's a biography mother? of her own mother. Right, yeah. And she, when her mother died, she found that her mother had been keeping all of these notes and had had numerous attempts at writing her own life story, but kept abandoning them. And then Kate typed up all the notes and realised there was 100,000 words. Her mother had written 100,000 words of all sort of didn't quite Whoa. work. So she just mined that and did her own research and wrote this story. It's, it was really great, actually. It reminded me a little bit of A Fortunate Life by A.B. Facey, yeah. like quite an ordinary life, yet really interesting because you don't often get to read of the life of women of that sort of era, you know, like basically lived throughout the 20th century. Um, really, really interesting. Oh, wow. That's, yes. That sounds great. Right, I'm looking forward to reading that cool. when I get out of my you know, terror reading <laughs> that I'm already familiar with mode. Now, we're, we're nearly at the um, end of our time, so is there any other, like, just what's your sort of little, you know, how we do that little wrap-up at the end? of? Oh, yeah, was... okay. Um, yeah, a couple of things that I've um, happened across or people have forwarded me as a link this week, which have been really interesting, was um, there's a great piece in The New Yorker called Where the Bodies Are Buried, mm -hmm. and it's this sort of fabulously... Um, beautifully written um, account of um, Gerry Adams and the Troubles oh. and you know that project that got a bit of press last year where Boston College had been... Just closing the door because there's a plane coming. <laughs> ah. um, Boston College. You know how Boston College were interviewing all of these IRA um, 
officers basically secretly doing so. So they were trying to compile an oral history Mm -hmm. where people who had worked as hardcore IRA fighters, Mm -hmm. um, including killing people and, you know, um, and were, were, were interviewed by Boston College, um, really frankly outlining everything they'd done and who else was involved on the proviso that their accounts be sealed until their deaths, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting way of securing those stories because, I mean, um, uh, you know, the sort of tradition um, for a lot of even the victims of those murders is just never to dob, right? right. And the famous case of um, Jean McConaughey, um, McConville, sorry, um, who was a mother of 10 who was sort of disappeared in the middle of the night and never seen again. Mm. You know, um, her children who have talked quite extensively about it, this was in the early 70s, know exactly the eight people that came and took her mother away mm. and have never said oh. who they are. And there's this amazing thing and stuff in this um, piece in the New Yorker about, you know, from, from Michael, who's her son, um, about how one of the men, and there were four men and four women, who came and took their mother in the middle of the night, still drives a taxi in his area, and he sometimes gets into his taxi. Oh. So just the two of them oh my God. in a taxi, and nothing is ever said. You know, like, it's quite extraordinary. So, look, this got a bit of press last year because... Was it last year or the year before? It might have even been the year before. Because... Um, the um, Ulster police got mm. wind of these interviews mm. and um, were seized by the um, impression that um, some of the interviews directly um, implicated Gerry Adams, mm. who, of course, has you know is, um, was sort of um, a leading part of the peace process, has always denied being a member of the IRA, yeah. but says you know. Um, he defends the IRA, but I've never been a member. Well, you know, this whole article explores this sort of fact that it's kind of an open secret that that's not true. Um, oh, anyway, that it's, it's really fascinating, but it's so interesting about just the psychology of these sort of rebel armies and that happen in residential communities. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's a great read. Also, have we managed to... Um severed diplomatic relations with Ireland. <laughs> you all, as I was reading this, it was when you know this this sort of weird faux controversy erupts about Tony Abbott, you know, in his latest you know bold international move, wearing a green tie and making some sort of throwaway remark about um, St Patrick's Day being a good time to have a Guinness or three, <laughs> and the the current now how do you pronounce it? Is it it's Tsok, isn't it? I don't the, know. The, the leader of the um, Irish Parliament. Now it's spelled. Tower Siege. Oh, okay. And then, but it's actually pronounced T Sock, which is hilarious, like, to be sure. T in my sock. But <laughs> see, now, see, now, now I've done it. Exactly, that's right. I You're know. just like heaping ashes onto Australia's head. Halfway through this New Yorker article, the phrase to be sure is actually used, but non ironically, I assume. And I'm just sort of like, well, you'll, be, you'll get in trouble. <laughs> just like, don't have it. But anyway, the, so the T Sock, who very awkwardly was standing next to Barack Obama when he was asked about, what do you think about this uh, Australian Prime Minister's remark about, you know, people going out and having a, three glasses of Guinness? 
Um, and he very sternly said, well, you know, I think it's most irresponsible and, you know, oh. um, it's, it's a really old-fashioned idea about Irish people. It's not fair. <laughs> <sighs> anyway. Mm. Um, now, the only other thing I wanted to add, which I just really enjoyed reading, was a piece in the Saturday paper. I think it was – look, it could have been old. I don't know. I only saw it for the first time this week. It was about David Mitchell. Oh, sorry. We must have hit, like, peak plane yeah. time. I'm just going to have to shut the door again and <laughs> – Oh, God, sorry, people who listen to us. I just, sometimes I think, why do you persevere? Um, they probably haven't. Like, no one is actually now listening to this. They're just, just like, oh, for you. God's sake, I could have sat next to the airport. Me, and you, this and sort of action. my mum. Hi, yeah. mum. <laughs> um, it was about the British comedian David Mitchell of Mitchell and Murphy yep. um, having had a lot of difficulty over his life falling in love or he, he would fall in love with people, but he would never breathe a word of it because he didn't, was too scared. And so he had all these, you know, unrequited crushes on people. And then finally, so unsurprising. <laughs> he finally just fell absolutely desperately in love with this woman named Victoria Corrin, which Ooh, is just, isn't right. that exactly? She's one of the Corrins. Yes. She's trouble. Yeah. Yes. And she's, you know, apparently very charming and witty and she's a columnist for the Observer and also a professional poker player. If your last, last name is Corrin, you're always a columnist for The Observer. Exactly. But I just, don't you think Victoria Corrin is the best name for the object of somebody's unrequited affection? absolutely. Perfect. Central casting. So David Mitchell fell just pathetically in love with her to the degree, she was with somebody else, wasn't interested, to the degree that he, even though he was really successful, would not move out of his just downtrodden flat because he couldn't bear the thought of making a decision and living somewhere that wasn't with Victoria Corrin. And then they finally then got together. And now he's married to Victoria Corrin. No way. Yes. Anyway, it was a really lovely... I no idea about that. Oh. Yeah. It was a lovely piece um, and just really interesting. Um, and also it reminded me of one of my favourite comic skits of all time, which is... Have you seen that one where he he takes issue with the fact that Americans say, I could care less. Oh, I know. Yes, I love that. Oh, it's so so clever. He has an access of, you know, why saying I could care less is completely inaccurate and that the British thing of I couldn't care less actually perfectly sums up what they're trying to say. Anyway, it's very funny and clever and and I loved it. It is great. Um, I did have something else that I wanted to mention and it's about booze. Um, So, yeah, there's this... um, interesting piece in the Atlantic um, called The Surprising Failures of 12 Steps. And it's about, you know how in America, Alcoholics Anonymous is, is it's viewed as the yeah. solution to alcoholism, right? And it's all about, like, it's sort of, it's very godly and mm-hmm. it's very, I'm going to persist with this and if it doesn't work, then it's my failure and, you know, um, and it's about total abstinence. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this piece goes into the actual success rate of AA, which I always thought, like, must have been quite high because mm-hmm. they really are into it. But apparently it's sort of between five and eight percent the failure rate is actually huge and it's all about you know what the techniques are behind AA and he goes to Finland this writer and um and looks at uh um uh different methods used there to combat alcoholism because they are massive drunks in um, Finland. Sorry, just um, just getting ahead of Tony Abbott there. The by, Irish, uh, yeah, the, the Finnish. We're finished. Um, anyway, oh, I think now you are now in a position where opening the car door brings planes. Okay. I love how you just collapsed now. Your, your synapses are melting. Stay. You're just giggling. Um, but anyway, yeah, so. it, it also reminded me of this great um, little part of a This American Life podcast I heard a couple of months ago um, by uh, um, it called The Wisdom to Know the Difference. And it was part of a, um, a three-piece 
where they specialise in um, a moment where somebody makes a decision that changes their life or like, you know, making oh, a decision. Okay. Anyway, I know you're interested in that kind of yes, general thing. And the first part in this um, podcast is about this famous bus driver, New York bus driver, or maybe he was... I can't remember. I think maybe New York bus driver in um, the 60s, I think, who just kept driving his bus and drove all the way to Florida. Like he just sort of, he was at work and he just thought, oh, sod this. Were there passengers on the bus? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But he he let them off, you know, if they wanted to get off. I think That was my stop back there in New Jersey. (laughs) But he became this folk hero because he was just this guy who just went, do you know what? I want to go to Florida. I'm just taking this bus. I'm, you know, it wow. was the ultimate break-free moment. But the the podcast is all about actually like the right reaction that his children have. Like they interview this oh, son awesome. who was really he's like, yeah, everyone thinks my dad's a hero. The rest of his life, you know, people coming up to him in cafes and saying, "You are awesome." And he said, "I was just sitting there, smouldering because I didn't think it was cool. I was worried about him. I didn't know where he'd gone. You know, it right. was really interesting." Oh, that's but great. the bit that I'm actually meant to be talking about, and I'm sorry, I'm rambling, is. Um, they talked to this woman called Tina Dupuy, um, who was the poster girl for AA for, you know, years and years and years. And she's on all the pamphlets. And she, her story is, you know, I was drunk by the time I was 12 and she had a tough upbringing and yeah. um, abandoned by her mum, I think. And, you know, and she joined AA when she was really young, like in her 20s, and she became the turnaround story. I've turned my life around. And so this, but this podcast is about, what happened to her when she was in her 40s or so and she just thought what if I really am a drunk you know what if I just had a glass of wine because AA is all about abstinence yeah. and so this whole story is about what happens when she sits down with her husband mm-hmm. and opens a glass of wine and has one because her whole life is about that will kill me I will become this monster and and, and how it, did it go when she she was entirely unaffected and just thought and yeah. was able to have just a glass of wine yeah she now you know has the odd glass of wine with her husband anyway mm. it's just a really interesting examination of where she is and how the organization works and anyway right now it's not that i don't have more to talk about but i just need to go and find a plunge pool <laughs> i'm, <laughs> I'm down to pack a, you in i us. think i'm down to about 38 kilos <laughs> You're now like in a position to become a Melbourne Cup jockey. We're never doing it in the car <laughs> again. This is the actress to the bishop. <laughs> I still haven't. Oh, quite, you still haven't I got know, over I Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, I that, don't reckon that and the Onion are going to stick with me forever. I don't reckon that we ever had a smutty line in this podcast until we went to that film, and now you're unstoppable. Yeah, and whose so. idea was that? Oh, yeah. anyway. Um, all right. Well, we'll see you again soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye.